Hello and welcome to Four Questions. Right, so now we're going to discuss a big question. What leads to pro-labour reforms? That is in a globalised context where governments want to keep costs low to attract global buyers and where business has regulatory capture of the state. What leads to pro-labour reforms? In this context, how can commercial pressures, private regulation, trade incentives help promote workers' rights, safety and pay? To understand this, I am here with the brilliant Dr. Jennifer Bear from the University of Virginia, and she's going to be discussing her co-authored paper with two titans in the field, who I'm a massive fan of as well, um, and that's Jeremy Blasey and Mark Anna. So we're going to examine this, this question of pro-labor reforms with the case study of Bangladesh. There have been many mm-hmm. industrial accidents here, including the Tazarine factory fire that killed over 100 people. But very little happened, um, and there was no commercial pressure for reform. But after the Rana Plaza factory collapse, uh, which killed over a thousand people, manufacturers and government in Bangladesh became more open to reform. Why was that, Jennifer? Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned the Tazreen factory fire, because I think that, in fact, a lot of times when we talk about the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh, we forget that it was actually just the last and most dramatic Uh, episode in a series of fatal industrial disasters, Mm. both factory fires and factory collapses like Rana Plaza. There had been actually a lot of activism um, in the aftermath of some of those earlier tragedies, and a lot of that was collaborative organizing between workers on the ground in Bangladesh and NGOs in Bangladesh and sort of allies um, in the US and Europe and elsewhere. Um, But you're right, it just didn't seem to get a lot of traction prior to Rana Plaza. I think Rana was such an enormous catastrophe. Mm. It got so much media attention and publicity that I think both the government of Bangladesh and the foreign brands that were sourcing from Bangladesh began to feel real pressure to respond. And I think one of the things that's important about the earlier activism was that there had actually been a negotiation of an agreement similar to what was eventually implemented as the Accord on Fire Safety uh, and Worker Safety in Bangladesh. And once Rana Plaza happened, that agreement was there as a kind of blueprint because I think activists knew that the window of opportunity created by this negative publicity was actually pretty short and they were able to put pressure on brands to sign something pretty quickly. And that's one of the things that led to this very important factory safety program. So that's a really important point that even though windows of opportunity are often infrequent, what really matters is if you have a strong transnational network so that everyone is mobilized and engaged, knows each other, and then when they've got an opportunity, boom! Exactly, there was a kind of infrastructure there Mm. and that was a huge part of, I think, why the accord was able to be achieved. So people can respond quickly. Okay, so the government became really concerned about the brand of Bangladesh. They were worried about their reputation. They were worried that all these foreign buyers might just disappear. Yep, they were incredibly worried about that and with very good reason mm. because apparel exports are overwhelmingly mm. Bangladesh's largest. It's like 80% or something, yeah. Exactly, it's about 80%. So it's a huge source of uh, basically foreign revenue for, for mm. Bangladesh. Mm. And it's really the only source of significant industrial employment, particularly yeah. for women. Yeah. So the government has really put uh, apparel at the center of its economic growth strategy. And in the aftermath of Rana Plaza, essentially the government was terrified that these foreign brands were going to flee the country. I think there was also a little bit of concern that Bangladesh might lose the trade preferences that it has under the GSP system, yes. which basically allows Bangladesh to export apparel to Europe 
and essentially you know have lower tariffs assessed on those products now those benefits are supposed to be contingent on bangladesh observing uh, core labor standards mm. and i think there was some concern that in the aftermath of rana plaza that the european union might begin to look a little more closely at whether or not bangladesh was holding up its end of the bargain so wait let me get this straight so the government became came more willing to consider pro-labor reforms as a result of commercial pressures, mm-hmm. worry about foreign buyers mm-hmm. escaping, and also trade incentives. Not domestic discontent? Was no. there not a domestic pressure? You know, people being horrified by the deaths of compatriots in certainly Bangladesh. There were, certainly there were folks on the ground in Bangladesh that were organizing around this and mm-hmm. trying to call mm-hmm. attention to this, but they'd been doing that for a while, mm-hmm. right? Um, and unfortunately... Bangladesh Why did that has, not have any impact on government? Uh, Bangladesh has a pretty, um, what my colleague Mark Anner calls labor repressive regime, right? Mm. So it's been very, very hard, particularly for workers, to kind of get traction in their efforts um, to have the government respond to Why is that? Why is that? I think that Bangladesh for a while really believed that they needed to keep labor costs as low as possible in order to compete with other countries, particularly other big exporting countries. Mm. So if you look at a country like China, for example, which is the world's largest exporter Mm. of apparel, prices there, labor costs are quite a bit higher than Mm. in Bangladesh. So I think, you know, to some degree, Bangladesh's strategy was kind of cornering the global market uh, with very, very large supplies of very inexpensive labor. And they were worried, frankly, that um, permitting workers to to organize and to express discontent about wages and working conditions might indeed raise labor costs and ultimately hurt their long-term competitiveness. After Rana Plaza, though, they had to balance that concern with the concern about, you know, brands leaving. And I think that the threat of the exit of the big buyers was probably a more immediate concern than the loss of the trade preferences. Okay, so I can understand how there was an economic... So the government thought that economically, in order to prosper, it wanted to keep uh, wages low and keep costs as low as possible to remain globally competitive. But wasn't there any domestic political pressure? Like thinking the you know, each political party might feel that they might lose votes if they didn't act on this? Was there no... That's a great question. I mean, certainly there's a a kind of a history of minimum wage increases, Mm -hmm. for example, being sort of timed to coincide with elections, right? Mm -hmm. So there is certainly a link between... Uh, you know, labor policy to Mm. some degree and kind of the political cycle. But, you know, I I think a lot of folks would agree that we're not talking about a context where there's really robust democratic institutions. Mm. Um, And so this labor repressing strategy to some degree has been one that's kind of spanned the political spectrum. Mm. Yes, all the political... There aren't any parties who are strongly linked to trade unions, for example. There's basically sort of two. um, And uh, and neither one has particularly strong links to labor. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And, And we should also mention that many people who are involved in business are also in parliament so there's sort of regulatory capture yeah so i think the other you know the other important point about bangladesh is that it's almost a classic case of regulatory capture where you have a set of kind of powerful interests in the industry that um, are closely well connected to and in some cases themselves in the government so in a context like bangladesh we might say that it would be unlikely for there to be strong political in a context where you've got repression of trade unions where it's difficult to organize uh you know you have to have 30 percent of people within a factory to be a member of a union in order for that union to be regular uh recognized you've got no trade unions allowed in export processing zones that's right in that labor oppressive context it's difficult for there to emerge strong domestic political pressure to reform that's right and in fact 
those two points that you just mentioned, the very, very high threshold for union recognition mm -hmm. and uh, the fact that the export processing zones are excluded from, mm -hmm. from the country's labor code, um, those are two aspects of policy that were not changed after Rana Plaza. There were some changes made to uh, the Bangladeshi labor code as part of a Bangladesh kind of EU agreement called the Sustainability Compact. Okay. And folks who were watching those reforms really thought that uh, those two provisions, which were widely regarded as uh, labor repressive, might be changed. Um, and they So let's just backtrack. After Rana Plaza, the government of Bangladesh and the European Union agreed, uh, came up with this sustainability compact. Exactly. And they were going to do it, change the labor law, improve health and safety. Right. And, and also there was some language in there too about, you know, kind of the importance of the industry addressing the problems at the factory level as and well. And I think it's so interesting that your paper is on this initiative from the government mm -hmm. because so much of, as many of our listeners will know, so much of the attention has been on the Accord and the Alliance as private regulatory yep. systems, which are sort of organised their legal agreements between firms and unions to, you know, largely bypassing the state. Uh, and what we really need to do for a strong, sustainable change, nationwide change, is to think about well, what, what's the government, government's doing, what's public regulation doing. So I'm so, so excited that you're focusing on this. So in terms of health and safety, how is that improving in, with the government regulation? Yeah, so the, on the worker health and safety side, I think there have been real improvements mm. in Bangladesh over the last couple of years, in large measure, due to these, as you say, kind of private... Uh, inspection programs, yes. um, the Alliance and the Accord. The, and they've gotten a lot of attention, the Accord in particular, for very good reason. There are a couple features of the Accord, the Accord that are really unique and, and kind of historic. Mm. One is that it's um, an agreement between global brands um, and international and mm. national trade mm. unions. Mm. Um, and so that's pretty uh, unusual. Mm. It's got a co-governance model. Mm. Um, there's also a lot of transparency in terms of information that's released about the status of um, health and safety yes. in those factories. And then the third thing about the Accord that's really unique and important is that it does have an enforcement clause. Uh, you can essentially, um, if someone's not keeping their promises or obligations under the accord, you can take them to court. In, in terms and that of, happened, and there was a big did, payout right. earlier this that's year. That's right, there was a commercial arbitration case that yep. went forward. So so I understand, on the one hand, all of the attention that the that the accord is getting. At the same time, right, I think as even the accord's strongest uh, proponents would acknowledge, um, the accord probably won't be around forever, no. right? It was initially created as a five-year agreement yes. because the idea was it was going to take some time, clearly, mm. to address the problems with fire, electrical, and structural safety mm. in Bangladeshi factories. But the idea was that eventually this would be handed off mm. to the government. So the question is how much progress has been made. Mm. Um, the accord has actually been extended for another period of time because you know, there was an acknowledgement that at this point, at least, not all of the repairs have been made mm. to the factories. Um, and it's not clear that the government is ready at all to assume those responsibilities. And why why isn't the government willing to change? Because what, why hasn't it been worried that it's got to reform in order to keep buyers happy and to stay globally competitive? It's a good question. I think that there are, I mean, I should say, first of all, that it's a huge industry. So we're talking yeah. about thousands of factories and there are some, you know, state-of-the-art factories in mm. Bangladesh. 
But if you think about the distribution of those factories in terms of conditions, mm. um, there are a lot of factories sort of at the end of that distribution that maybe haven't uh, cleaned up their act as much. And one of the other aspects, I think, of the Bangladesh story that we tend to forget is those private sector safety programs mm. that are led by the brands mm. don't cover all factories in Bangladesh that are yeah. exporting. There's a big number of factories that are exporting, but they're not exporting for brands that are part of the Accorder Alliance. And all of those factories are being inspected by a government mm. inspection program. Mm. And there's a real concern about what the status of those factories are. One of the problems is when you have a factory that's exporting, but not for a brand, mm. how do you leverage the supplier to make needed repairs? Mm. Who do you go to, right? The way that the Accord and the Alliance work is if you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing, under those agreements, the brand has to quit buying from you. Yes. Right? If the factory doesn't mm. remediate, if it doesn't address its hazards, mm. then you're supposed to terminate the relationship, the sourcing relationship. Mm. But if there's no buyer to go to, right? So in this way, it's one of the many ways that you can see that the government plays a really critical role. Um, and even with all the progress that's been made through the private sector inspection programs, the real question is how do we sustain that progress going forward. So when you are supplying a brand that's not part of the Accord or the Alliance, yep. which isn't reputation conscious, there's no commercial leverage. That's there's right. no commercial pressure. So you've got a, a manufacturing company which is trying to stay price competitive. That's right. the, and you know they are trying to keep their prices low as that's possible right. so they continue to win contracts, which right. contracts coming to Bangladesh are often just looking for low prices. Exactly. So they don't have the money for some big capital investment to start in, st inserting sprinklers or inserting banisters on stairs right. because they're just trying to keep their costs as low as possible. That's right. So the Otherwise, they'll go out of business, that's right? That's right. So the industry in Bangladesh is trying to essentially thread um, the needle, right? Yeah. They're trying to maintain a, a certain level of, I think, safety around really, really key issues because they recognize that another Rana Plaza would, you know, potentially devastate mm. the industry. Right. So they, they are aware on the one hand of the need to avoid that kind of reputational disaster. On the other hand, they know that they're part of a global industry with intense price pressure mm. and they feel that competition mm. and they're concerned about changes to the industry that will make Bangladesh a more expensive place to produce. Mm. From the vantage point of Bangladeshi manufacturers, one of the complaints or criticisms that I've heard is, you know, why are we being asked to do this? Why isn't Pakistan being asked mm. to do this? Why isn't, um, you know, Cambodia being mm. asked to do this? Now, on the one hand, the obvious answer is those countries weren't having industrial disasters mm. of the scale yeah. uh, and at the pace that Bangladesh was having them. Mm. At the same time, they're raising a fair question, which is, you know, this is a global industry and they know that brands are constantly scanning the landscape of that industry yeah. for new cost competitive locales. So at the same time that they're being asked to invest in their factories and fix these problems, which obviously, you know, they should do, they're aware that brands are looking at places like Ethiopia or Myanmar. Yeah. And so, you know, that is always part of their equation. Yeah, absolutely. And manufacturers are always complaining about this two-phase two strategy of buyers. On the one hand, there's this big pressure, improve your CSR, improve your CSR. But at the same time, the bottom line is procurement policy, we want low prices. Yeah, I think that the frontier really of the 
conversation around kind of private governance is an increasing recognition that you have to find a way to integrate your commercial terms, mm. your sourcing yes. policy, and your kind of CSR. Because policy. if you keep them separate, then you don't have any uh, impact. Yeah, exactly. Then you you know you really aren't able to kind of move the needle. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of one debate. The other, I think, question that we need to be thinking about is what is the relationship between private governance and, and public governance? And in some ways, I think the pendulum is swinging a little back, a little bit back towards those who argue that the state has to be part of the solution. Mm. Brands have a huge role to play in terms of mobilizing commercial pressure. Mm, mm. Um, and at the same time, in the long run, the kinds of gains that um, that I think are being made on the health and safety front, it's important to specify yeah. that the Accord does not address no. the broader set of issues, mm. nor does the Alliance, um, in terms of wages and working conditions. Mm. But in the area of worker health and safety, there's real progress being made. And the question is, how is it sustainable? Ultimately, right, the industry will likely kind of move on from mm. Bangladesh as the new, you know, frontier of the industry emerges. And the question is, you know, what remains from these efforts without a commitment by the government to ensuring core labor standards? Mm. Um, you know, it's not clear what the future is. Mm. So you said that that the, these brands, these private regulatory systems have been trying to create these islands of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So in the factories that they source mm -hmm. from, they try to make it okay mm -hmm. within those factories. But the problem is that private regulatory changes don't address the broader governance systems. And that is yep. huge labor repression. So we mentioned earlier, That's trade right. unions aren't allowed in export processing zones. It's very difficult to register a trade union. Right. And in the paper, you highlight how even when people try to register a union, they're often rejected. And they're right. rejected so many times, they just stop even bothering. You. Right, so this is one of, the, one of the areas, I think, where we can really see what's sometimes called the spotlight effect. Mm. After Rana Plaza, one of the commitments that the Bangladesh government made under the Sustainability Compact was to kind of look at its labor law, but also some of its policies around, for example, registering unions. Mm. And there was a period of time shortly after the tragedy that we did see an increase in union registrations. Mm. And the Bangladesh government and the industry were pointing out that you know the climate was changing, that there was sort of more openness to worker organizing. What we've seen actually is that that has um, reversed and that now the number of sort of rejections of union registration applications has gone up again. Mm. And so I think the sense is, you know, hey, the pressure's off of us a little bit. Mm. There hasn't been, you know, thank God, mm. another catastrophic incident like Rana Plaza. And to some degree, you know, people's attention spans are relatively short. Maybe folks aren't looking as closely. Mm. Um, and it seems that, you know, the climate for worker organizing is again um, you know, quite unfavorable. And I think that the connection here, it's true that the Accord is based um, or is looking really at health and safety. Mm. But there's a connection here because we know from a lot of work that, you know, the best uh, way to keep a worker safe is to enable that worker to voice concerns yeah. about health and safety. Yeah, to be as watchdogs. Exactly. And so this kind of fundamental question, I think, about worker voice and freedom of association isn't unrelated to these concerns about worker health and safety, particularly when it comes, again, to, to securing that those improvements last into the future. Mm. So what you've got there is a real chicken and egg problem because we need the labor law to be improved so that it's easier for trade unions to register, easier to yep. mobilize, less likely to get beaten up by the police. Yep. But in order to have better labor laws, you need stronger pressure from labor. You need stronger trade unions. That's right. But we don't have that. 
Right. So how do you resolve the, this chicken and egg problem with weak trade unions and strong labor repression? And what you're saying here is that the domestic pressure isn't enough and that the commercial pressure only emerged really immediately after Rana Plaza and has now dissipated. And the question is, you know, what role will the brands play in mm. keep, kind of keeping the pressure on and keeping the pressure on not just when it comes to factory safety. Again, mm. that's critical, but... You know, it's not clear that the brands are going to be committed to ensuring that workers' kind of basic associational rights are also protected. But there is certainly, I think, a role for them to play there. They do have real leverage. The other, I think, potentially unexploited leverage might be these trade incentives mm. that are provided um, to Bangladeshi exporters. Again, those are supposed to be contingent on um, con you know, compliance with basic labor standards. And so there is a role also for the importing countries to play uh, in kind of putting pressure on the government to ensure their... See, I, some people are concerned about trade standards yeah. because they see them as neo-colonial. Yes. And it also allows our companies to get totally off the hook. Yeah. Because they can, they don't need to change their practices. And if you say that Bangladesh doesn't have to abide by these standards, then they can just go somewhere else, you know, Pakistan. Right. Or, or Myanmar or another labor repressive country like Ethiopia. Sure. sure. Uh, yeah. so, so one, it's neo-colonial. Two, it might be a game of whack-a-mole where the buyers are just continuing to move wherever the labor, you know, the prices remain low. Right. No, I think it's not, you know, it's certainly not a tool to be used unthinkingly mm. or by itself, right? Mm. So ideally you want to you want to be trying to work on both of these fronts mm. to be ensuring that the buyers are um, essentially having commercial policies that are consistent with these standards. Um, but at the same time, you know, these are standards that the Bangladeshi government has sort of committed to. Right, right? sure. So when we look at something like even the... Um, particular standards around factory safety. One argument after Rana Plaza was, well, how can you expect a poor country like Bangladesh, you know, to have the same standards as a, a rich country, you know, like Germany or the United States. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the code on the books in Bangladesh was pretty good. The mm. issue was a lack of enforcement. Yes. Right? Yeah. So what we're really talking about is not so much a kind of um, a double standard in, in terms of what uh, what we're expecting from countries, but really the enforcement of kind of basic international standards that, you know, that the Bangladeshi government has committed to, but hasn't always wanted to, um, to enforce. Mm. And I suppose that's where trade agreements can come in. Like you and I have both written on Vietnam and TPP right. Right. and how the U.S. Congress pushed for right. there to be allowed independent trade unions right. Right. and that pushed the uh, government of Vietnam to become more open to that Absolutely. policy change. I think that the, that the concern about neocolonialism is legitimate insofar as it's certainly the case that developing countries are not the only countries where basic labor standards are not necessarily observed, mm -hmm. right? So they're, they're, it's fair to point out that there's a kind of selective enforcement mm. you know, of labor standards. And the concern, I think, historically has been that they've been used uh, as a kind of protectionist yes. measure to keep imports out. You know, at this moment in the global economy where you have such extensive global supply chains and so many of the goods and services that we consume are coming from abroad in some fashion, mm. um, I think that we have to think a little bit differently about kind of our responsibility, um, you know, as consumers um, towards, you know, towards workers 
in a context where essentially we're all kind of interconnected. Yeah, in really, but this really is what concerns ways. me. This is what concerns me. If we talk about consumers, yeah, many American consumers continued to purchase from firms that didn't sign up to the accord. Yes. Might not, you know, sign the alliance, which is pretty weak. And then we see, if we look at trade data, yeah. as in your paper, in fact, after Rana Plaza, exports went up. That's right. Uh, from 2013 to 2015, yeah. export values grew by a third. So yeah. there was no economic consequences for bad labor conditions. There's no incentive for governments to change because the U.S. consumers were turning a blind eye. The firms were happy not to sign the accord. And so, and that carries on. Yeah, I think there's a tension between, on the one hand, it's clear that the companies that signed the accord uh, were concerned about negative repercussions for Monoplaza. Mm. It was a very, very serious PR problem. Mm. At the same time, I don't necessarily know that the accord was designed entirely as a kind of consumer-oriented agreement. It's not as if when you go into H&M, there are hang tags on their clothes, you know, saying this garment was produced in a factory um, that is part of the Bangladesh mm, Accord, mm, right? Mm. So I think one of the problems with a fully a kind of consumer-oriented logic, which mm. says, you know, we have the only way to, to achieve this is to make sure that consumers are fully informed mm. and, in a sense, vote with their pocketbook mm. and buy products mm. that are ethically mm. produced, is that, you know, for the vast majority of consumers, there is a lack of information mm. and a lack of time, mm. frankly, yeah, to sure. educate themselves at the level that they might need mm. to. And most importantly, not everyone can afford, mm. right, to buy, for example, you know, kind of ethically labeled. But is sort that of is that true? Like when we look at the ma the makeup of a t shirt, like yeah. workers' wages yeah. are such a like you know yeah. less than two percent of yes. that fraction. No, it's tiny. So if you passed it, you know, depending on how it was passed on to workers, mm. the economics are such that it might be it might be certainly doable. Mm. Um, but the question is, you know, is that transparent? Mm. How does how do the different sort of actors in the chain deal with the markup right so there so are a Jen, lot of questions you're, you're presenting this. me this very doom and gloom scenario yeah. so we've got the, there's no there's very there's there's minimal yeah. domestic yeah. pro-labor pressure for reform right there's minimal commercial pressure for more freedom of association which is what we need to improve health right. and safety and pay there's limited government interest because politically there's no pressure on it and economically they want to keep prices as low as possible and instead of investing in economic upgrading, their strategy is just to keep prices low. Hmm. So what the heck, what's the, I, I need some glimmer of hope. I need I do, some suggestion about how it might improve, what could work. Yeah, I definitely think that, um, you know, in some ways where we've come, something like the Accord was just not thinkable. 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't thinkable for a couple reasons. One is that it requires cooperation and collaboration among buyers. Mm -hmm. And historically, you know, they haven't necessarily been willing to cooperate mm -hmm. that closely mm -hmm. around these kinds of supply chain mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. Second, there's a lot of transparency mm -hmm. around sort of who's participating in that and what the status of the factories mm -hmm. are yeah. that are supplying those brands. Um, and third, they're actually putting money into that program yes, so they're yeah. not they're not necessarily funding the cost of the repairs to the mm -hmm. factory but they are paying to support the program itself yeah. so the accord has the engineers etc. exactly a number of engineers a number of inspectors so there's real money being put in there um and that i think does is cause for um some optimism okay the 
question I think is, okay, now that we're at this crossroads, mm. we've been at this for a number of years, mm. the accord's been extended, mm. but presumably eventually um, that operation will cease to exist mm. qua the yeah. accord with the level of um, sort of, you know, oversight that the brands have had. The question is, how do you sustain that? Mm. And, you know, the brands are at a at a position now, I think, where they can credibly claim to the Bangladeshi government, look, you know, we've invested a lot of time and money and energy, you know, into addressing this particular crisis mm. in worker health and safety mm. around the factories. But to make these investments sustainable, we're going to need you to, you know, make some changes um, in terms of the public governance. Mm. And it's important that we all kind of keep the pressure on to make sure that that happens in this, I think, now new kind of window of opportunity. Um, now that we're five years out from Rana, you know, what is going to be the ultimate legacy, you know, of that tragedy? So you think that if the government were to allow greater labor rights, that would ultimately come from more commercial pressure? You think that's the most likely driver of change? I think it's the most likely driver of change in part because I don't see much willingness on the part of the European Union, which is the major import market, yes. to sort of use the the the, the carrot and sticks of the trade policy mm. of the JSP plus. So given that, I think that the commercial pressure is the most likely way for uh, for this to happen. And you think that the commercial pressure motivating the government to make labor rights would be for them to push for labor rights, telling the government what to do rather than say raising their price, you know, there's definitely not, it's definitely not an either or. Yeah, sure. Um, and for sure, you know, one way to, to demonstrate a commitment to um, changing the environment in Bangladesh is indeed, you know, to, mm. uh, to increase prices. Mm. There is a real question about what an increase at the factory level to the supplier will mean to the worker, right? Yes, so not yeah, only is course. it about increasing prices, it's about ensuring that that increase in price actually because it won't necessarily be worker. redistributed especially exactly. if trade unions are repressed uh, exactly. there's mo no mobilization you could just lead to more profitable manufacturing exactly exactly so th the question isn't just you know should they pay more the question mm -hmm. is how can they ensure that ultimately if the beneficiary that they're trying to target is the worker how can they ensure that that, that those workers are benefiting certainly a minimum wage increase would be one way mm. um, that workers could benefit yes. most workers in the industry do earn the minimum wage mm. so unlike in some other countries where you have peace rates that actually push the effective wage up um, you know in Bangladesh the, the minimum wage minimum wage is pretty much the prevailing wage in the industry so it's an extremely important um, it's an extremely important standard Mm. Okay, so what I'm going to take away from this is that if we're thinking about improving governance, improving public governance, uh, state capabilities in a globalized context where there's a race to the bottom, we don't just need to think about domestic actors pushing to improve their governments because often they might be impeded by the prevailing institutions, mm -hmm. regulatory capture yep. and the political parties not allied with trade unions, but also thinking about commercial pressures and what we can do engaging with firms. Yeah, there's it's definitely kind of a chicken and egg problem, mm. as you said. And unfortunately there's no, you know, there's no silver bullet. I think that, you know, if you look at the way that the activist networks were able to really mobilize after Rana mm. Plaza and get something as significant as the Accord, it speaks to the importance of transnational organizing. There were plenty of folks that were working very hard, you know, in Bangladesh around these issues. And, you know, 
they were working largely in alliance with allies, you know, in the importing countries. Mm. So there's certainly an important role for, you know, domestic, um, domestic organizing and activism. There's certainly a role to play for uh, the global brands mm. whose orders are really driving yes. so many of uh, of these issues and potentially could, you know, be mobilized to improve conditions. Mm. There's a role to play for the governments of the importing countries mm. um, and the consumers that uh, can put pressure on both those governments and the brands. And there's a critical and potentially, I think, underappreciated role in some of the conversation about uh, post Rana Plaza Bangladesh of the Bangladeshi government yeah. uh, to play. And, you know, potentially also of international institutions like the ILO um, that can provide some assistance in helping Bangladesh develop the infrastructure that, you know, ultimately it's going to need to address this problem in a sustainable way. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. That was four questions with Jennifer Bear at the University of Virginia. Thank you. Thank you.